0: Let's, uh, let's get back into the Passion here in uh, Matthew 26. Your handout uh, kind of fizzles at verse 50, and we almost made it that far this morning. I'd like to try to get that far uh, this evening, but we'll see what happens, because we're really uh, gonna focus tonight on the Lord's Supper and uh, what, what Matthew's Gospel has to say. And, uh, but let's get there first with Passover. Passover. And I'm just going to remind those of you who are new, um, on the screen, we're following the Evangelical Heritage Version, the EHV. So it may not be exactly, if you have your Bible open to the NIV or whatever, uh, uh, I understand completely, I probably would too. But EHV is what we have on the screen in this room for this class. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Passover. He said, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says my time is near. I will observe the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, I, uh, I've been wondering about verse 17 and thinking about it because, or rather verse 18, with a certain man. Because in Acts, I think it's Acts 12, we have a reference to the disciples gathering together at the upper room in Jerusalem. And we're told there that that upper room is the, is the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is the Mark, who is the author of the second gospel. Um, and here we're told that this upper room uh, is the house of this certain man. This guy, based on just what we have here in verse 18, I think I would say that this guy is a believer. He certainly is certainly is amicable to having Jesus show up at his house and use the upstairs uh, uh, dining area for, for this meal. So is, is it possible that this is Mary's husband and that in one part of the Bible it's, we have one reference and here we have a different reference that's not uncommon or is a diff- different house? Doesn't make too much of a difference, except that in Acts 12, the reference makes it seem like we've been here before. And so there where the disciples are still meeting in that place makes me think it's probably this same room, but, well, I guess I can't say more than that. And I certainly don't want to come down and say it has to be one or the other because there's nothing but trouble when you head down that path. So um, if the grammar doesn't tell me, if the, if the scriptures don't tell me, that, I'm going to leave it alone. Fair enough? All right. Now, Easy verse to read, hard verse if you're the one who has to do the preparing. 19, the disciples did as Jesus commanded them and prepared the Passover. Well, when's the last time you cooked a meal for 13 people? You know, it's been a while for some of us. uh, And uh, there's, there's an awful lot that goes on to a Passover meal that's not even just a normal, you know, where if I'm cooking at home, and I, and I realize, oh, we're out of French fries. You know, I can substitute something else. There's always instant potatoes, you know, or whatever. But for the Passover, there's very specific things going on here. So let's take, uh, you tell me, what do you know uh, uh, of the history of the Passover? When did it happen? When, what was going on? Marcia, your hand almost went up. <laughs> Yeah Oh, exactly. Well, you've, you've hit the, the, the two most important points, where they were, when it was and, and what the angel did. Yeah, excellent. So um, they had this what was the, what was the main dish? Lamb Lamb, Lamb. And uh, what did they do with the blood of the lamb? Painted it on the doorpost with hyssop. And what do they do with the flesh of the lamb? They roasted it and ate it. So already in the Passover account, we have the answer to the almost perennial catechism question, how come with baptism there's one element and in the Lord's Supper there's two? You know, why do we have two things in the Lord's Supper? Well, two things happened in the sacrifices at the tabernacle. The, the flesh of the sacrifice was put on the altar. And there it was either roasted or it went completely up into ashes and smoke. One or the, with the Passover lamb, it was just the roasted part. With, uh, and of course, in the, in the Exodus, actual Exodus account, they don't have a tabernacle yet. So they just roasted it in their own homes. But it would, it would later be roasted in the, as a sacrifice. It would be inspected and all that. Um, but the, So, the, so the, the flesh, the body of the sacrifice, one thing happens, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and then the blood of the sacrifice, something else happens, right? So the body went there, and then yum, 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 yum in here. Forgive the technical ease, Uh and then the blood, though, got poured out, right, for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus treats those two elements differently in the Lord's Supper as well. Well, there's more to the Lord's Supper with regard to the, I mean, with, with the Passover, rather, with regard to that ancient meal. And I've done uh, Passover meals here. I've led them a few times at St. Paul's, four or five times in my 20 years here. I did it as a vicar for the very first time. Um, and uh, this is a typical Passover. It's called a Seder plate. Seder is a service. Um, there will be the, the, these six items, but today in modern Passover plates, uh, you'll sometimes see a seventh item. Uh, most commonly, Jews today will add an olive. Just an olive. And what does an olive branch signify? Well, no, in, worldwide, an olive branch. Peace. peace. So why would a Jew put an olive on a Seder plate? Well, because in, in Israel and Palestine, it's like a little prayer for peace. So they include that with the Seder plates very often. Um, and then, But then with the, with the, the, these things are on your sheet. I have uh, the names of them and what they often are. Carpus will either be regular romaine lettuce or parsley leaves. This is not a bitter herb, okay? No matter what, I tried to tell my mother as a child, it's not bitter. Uh, uh, anybody else's mom ever feed them lettuce with sugar on it? That's pretty common in my household as a child. Mom would give me lettuce and then give me sugar. Actually, I think mom probably tried to put sugar on everything for me as a child, and which maybe explains my dental bills these days. But anyway... Carpus is not a bitter herb. Carpus the, often is, would be parsley, and would be a vegetable signifying hope and renewal, something like that. That's the significance of the carpus. Let's all say carpus. carpus. Very good. Not the thing under your feet. It is the vegetable. Then we have chereset. We may as well all say that too. Chereset, and the one below it is chesaret they're a little bit different, but get that going. if you see the yellow line here pointing to the thing, it looks like a dollop of something. It is actually a, like a nut and apple mixture, ground nuts and apple, kind of like applesauce with chunks. Um, and uh, it represents the mortar, uh, the, the mud, of making bricks in Egypt so that this is the that uh, this is the you can see the dad or the mom telling the story on the table of this was our hard service and because you know they uh, remember one of, in one of the plagues pharaoh did take away the straw and they had to 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 stomp on the mud without or cut their own straw and so forth that's done really well in the Charlton Heston movie um, that particular, they get some things wrong, like the date, completely. But other things they have that are done really well. There, they have the totally the wrong pharaoh. Totally the wrong pharaoh. Um, uh, they're off by two hundred years. But uh, the 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 but the events in the plagues is done really really well. So pretty good. Um, and then you have after that the, the Chazaret, and uh, um, that that's the first of the bitter herbs. Oh, I'll let you just do some grammar for me. Bitter herbs, singular or plural. But just to be sure, we're going to call it plural. So there are two bitter herbs on the plate, just in case. that makes sense? Um, yeah, and, and in deference to my friend, I will not say bitter herbs, uh, but bitter herbs. Um, so Hazaret there is clearly some kind of an onion or a leek, right, in this case. Although I've seen a Seder plate with an actual just clunk, big old yellow onion on there. Just the, the very same kind that my basketball coach made us eat raw before games. Um, why? Imagine the defender trying to guard you. and You're like, ah! I had a very intense high school basketball coach. His name was his his first name was Barry, and we called him Scary Barry for a reason. But uh, in in the in our public school, our public high school, he had God Family School painted on the wall. Uh, in that place. He was, he was uh, a very intense man. But I went to a public high school where I think 75% of the staff was all Missouri Synod Lutherans. So I think they got away with it in Poinette in those days. Um, anyway, uh, after Hazaret we go up to Maror. Let's all say Maror. Maror. And this Maror is, oh, did you have a question? Oh, the onion down here. Yeah, well, the same as the maror. The bitter, the harshness of slavery is what the what the bitter herbs are. Yeah, they're, they're, they're bitter lives. They're, they're very similar. Maror is simply horseradish. That's an actual hunk of horseradish rather than a dollop? Is that what I would call it if it was a spoonful of a tablespoon of horseradish? Actually, uh, an eighth of a teaspoon would be too much for my palate, but yeah. Um, I'm not a fan of horseradish. Um, uh, and then we get to the next one, which is, uh, it's, it's pronounced bayitza. So that, 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 that diphthong is not a diphthong, it's two separate vowels. Bayitza, which means, you tell me what that thing is. Absolutely, that's a brown chicken egg. That's a good old farm chicken egg. Uh, and they did it one of two ways. They either hard-boiled it or they roasted it. I would be scared to try to roast an egg. Well, that would be my concern. Even if you put the oven on two hundred or something, it would kind of take all day. But I mean, how, I, but maybe they didn't know about any other way to. But they roasted eggs, and or maybe that kind of soft boiled them. I'm not really sure. But anyway, um, an egg and the the, the oh wow and the, the, they um. This signified uh, various uh, temple sacrifices and things, but mainly it represented life, um, even life, birth, and uh, and, and, and death, and so forth, but the egg. And it's where the custom came. Of all of these things, one thing has entered into the Christian Easter celebration, and that's hard-boiled eggs. Yeah, yeah. My youngest son is about to turn 18. We still hunt for Easter eggs on Easter Sunday. I'm absolutely serious. Um, What a wholesome family I have. Those boys, they just... And I ask them year after year, with bigger size, are we doing eggs again this year? Yeah, we have to, Dad. And okay, all right. Because none of them eat them. So... Would a dozen be enough? No, we have to have two dozen. Oh, okay, so anyway. Uh so what did you say? So and then the last the last item is Zoroa, which is the shank bone. Not everybody gets a shank bone. This is just a display. Plate in the middle of everything. Otherwise, what would we put on our plates? Get a little bit of parsley. Get some of the apple stuff. Probably some weirdos would want the horseradish and you know maybe one onion. But then you'd really pile up on the eggs, and then you get big old slices of the mutton. Right? Um, as I've learned from reading ancient uh, naval history, why did I learn this from naval history? But I did. When you slice beef, it's thin. Chicken is kind of in the middle, or poultry, and then when it's, when, it's, when it's mutton, thick. Why is that? I'm not sure. Just, I suppose, yeah, you don't want leftovers of that. It's like, I, I can't, I, I love fish, but not leftover fish. Yeah, you don't want leftovers. Um, so anyway, they have this. Oh, and then you see, to the left of the plate, what do you see you're looking, staring down into? That's a wine glass. A cup of wine after the recitation of every plague. That's ten cups of wine. Now do you understand why the disciples were falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane? Dead serious. Ten cups minimum. Plus whatever they had before and after. You know, like, let's, let's just wet the whistle. But ten cups of wine. Probably not. That's a lot of wine. The same way, the same. that's a really good question, Deb. The same way that, that Luther's Duke, who Luther called the guzzler, could put away, I don't know how many uh, pints, quarts of beer in a meal. You know? I mean, I, I, I also know a member of my family who I adore, who, on his 80th birthday, um, put back uh, two pints of brandy. Two pints. Yeah, two of the big brandy old fashions, and then he drove home telling jokes, and would not let us drive the, take the car. You know, I'm not going to tell you what member of my dad family yeah. that was, but yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, and they because it was his 80th birthday they were free. So dad thought obligated to put him down, you know. But wow, of course he also picked the restaurant. So, um, yeah. Regular size cups, or was it just a no, they would have been a, a glass, a glass. Yeah, I don't know if it would be what in my house we call a juice glass, or which is kind of what a wine glass is. A wine glass. Yeah. The first couple years of my ministry in a congregation I've served, uh, I, uh, there was a woman who uh, would all try to grab the, tr- the chalice away from me. I finally learned to let go and let her because she always had to have three gulps of wine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But she would be look look and then hand it back. And I knew while she was drinking, I had to be reaching for the pitcher you know, to refill. But it's what she did. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Are you familiar with the People's Bible commentaries? Um, uh, the, the originals had white covers. All of them were illustrated by the same man who died in 1899. His name was James Tissett. This is his painting of the Last Supper. Uh, he said, when uh, he was asked about this, um, you know, they're, they're all, here they're, in, the, in the painting, they're all reclining in the painting. Um, except maybe Jesus. It kind of looks like maybe not so much. But they're kind of twisting. The guy on the right is kind of turning over like he just woke up or something. And, and, and he said it's hard to do that in a painting. To, to get a decent... Frame of the disciples and have them all reclining on the couches, and he he kind of did his best here. I think very likely it wasn't anything like this, but it was maybe more of a U shape, and they were all over the place, and maybe kind of laying over each other. That for one thing, these dining couches are not nearly long enough; they're more like recliners than dining couches, which would have been those big old. I think of it. I think of it as the Cleopatra chair, where it's like a round, curly on one end, and just a long chaise long? Is that how you say that? I don't know. Yeah, whatever that is. Um, but there they are. And forgive me, but does it look like there's a ceiling fan? I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. This was done in the 19th century, and I don't know. But, but uh, kind of like a ceiling fan there. Well, as they were eating, he said, Amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, "Surely not, I, Lord." Um, you see, the man who Jesus is reaching for there in the—is it more of a yellowish or reddish tunic there? That's Judas. Um, we know it's him because they would have shared the bowl on the table. Their right hands would have reached for the same. They, also, on the Passover plate, there would have been a bowl, a, a shallow. I would think of it as a butter dish with salt water for either your fingers or your bread or whatever you would dip in there. Probably I would have done fingers to get them clean, but the, somebody would say how gauche, but, you know, mutton. Um, and, uh, and there, uh, I also want to point out that who, of course, is leaning his head on Jesus' shoulder there? John. John was, but... Critics in the late 20th, early 21st centuries really ran away with paintings of like this, especially the one by da Vinci, but this one too, because, oh, that person has such a soft face and no beard and long hair, therefore it must be Jesus' wife, Mary Magdalene. What, whatever. Um, I mean, the, the truth is, John was probably about 18, 19 at this time, probably about 16 when Jesus called him into his. He's the youngest of the apostles. And so usually depicted with no beard yet, you know. Um, and, uh, but there, and otherwise, it's just a reflection of what was going on at the, at the Last Supper. Um, but uh, so all the disciples are very sad. They began to say, Surely not I, Lord. So now he's actually prophesied the betrayal and then jesus says the one who dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me the son of man is going just as it is written about him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would be better for that man if he had not been born which would be better to never have existed or to suffer in hell forever you know there's not much of a choice there um so Judas, who betrayed him, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. He said to him, Yes, you are the one. Another gospel, not Matthew, says that Jesus also said, What you are about to do, go and do quickly. Jesus adds that. Matthew doesn't. Um, but my question is, why did Judas say this? He had already, he already done it. He already has the thirty pieces of silver. He, he's already betrayed Jesus. Why would he open his mouth? Well, what's the old saying? Um, is it is it about murder? Murder will out. If 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 somebody has committed a crime, they there there is a often in people there is some kind of innate urge to in some way reveal it, if not confess it outright, but to leave you know kind of leave a clue or something along those lines uh uh and so judas says oh not i and uh geez. and the the other apostles evidently don't pick up on this at least at the time and maybe i mean it, it is true though if we're at the dinner table and i'm talking to my family and my brother tells me something i can't hear what my sister is saying you know, I'm not paying attention over here because of what's happening here. So maybe Judas said it quietly to Jesus. But why would you lie to Jesus? Then again, why would any of us lie to Jesus? And sometimes even in our hearts we do that. Um, you say, I will do this, but you know in the back of your mind you're not going to do that. But And God knows. So why would you even go there? But Judas Um, tries to do this. And we're told in another gospel that right after this, then, Judas leaves. Um, He gets up and goes. So that he is not there for the Lord's Supper. There were, as far as we know, we, we can say that the 11 were there and Jesus. But then, is it possible that the other two, Justice and Matthias, could have been there? Remember later on when they, when they choose Judas's successor, they've got these two guys who were there for everything since the beginning. Could, and would it be okay if they hadn't been there for the Lord's Supper, but for everything else, yes. Could they have been there for the Lord's Supper? Yeah, they could have been. they are not really mentioned, but we do know that they were along for most of this stuff. You know, if you were doing a movie of, of the life of Christ, you would want Matthias and this Judas Justice, this other guy, you'd want them around the whole time, even though they're not, you know, they would have been helping at the feeding of the 5,000 and, and things like that. Maybe even pulling at the oars on the, on the, on the Sea of Galilee and stuff like that. But, um, well, I don't know if they were there, but nevertheless, Judas is not there. While they were eating, and I'm, I'm going to tell you now, we're going to spend some time here on the Lord's Supper, maybe the next half hour, if you have a question about the Lord's Supper and you just think of it, this is a good time. Okay? I'm not trying to go quickly here. So if you have any kind of a question, I'm going to try to cover a lot of things from the text and then we'll, and, and, and I'll open it up. We can talk about stuff. Fair enough? All right. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, This is my body. So, I guess I'll get the Latin joke out of the way first. Um, Until 19, uh, Vatican II, 62? That sound right? Um, uh, The language of the Mass at the Catholic churches around the world was what? Latin. Latin. And in those days... Uh, The the people would hear Latin spoken. They would hear the priest consecrate the elements in Latin. And, you know, think of yourself as a little eight-year-old child. The priest turns around and says, Hocus corpus meum. This is my body. Which sounds to you like hocus pocus. And the priest has taught you, when I say this, this changes into that. So you start to think that hocus pocus means a magic word that changes one thing into another. So that's where Hocus Pocus enters into our language um, as that kind of magical formula. It is, of course, not, but that's what people thought. In Greek, it is tuta estin to soma mu. Tuta is Greek for this. Estin means is. Is means is. "Ta" is the Greek uh, definite article, m- the, soma, body, and mu is mine or of me. Okay, so, tuta esten to somamu, this is the body of me, this is my body. Clear enough? Those are the words. Um, now again, we get back to the sacrifice in the, in the days of the tabernacle. One thing happened to the flesh of the sacrifice, one thing happens to the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus, now, talking about the flesh, doesn't take the, the mutton, but he takes the bread and says, this is my body. And he breaks it, he tears it. Um, now, that was done in the Passover meal. Uh, one thing I didn't share with you is that on, a, on, a, on any Jewish Passover plate, there will be three pieces of matzah. They might be big saltine cracker-like things or they might be three nice floppy, can I say tortilla-esque matzah things. One, two, three. The middle one is always taken and torn. And part of that middle one is wrapped in a napkin, linen, and hidden away, buried. And then at the end of the meal, the children have a little game they look for it and then it is brought out by the father who reveals it and it is resurrected now being christian you think oh the second person is torn buried and resurrected and you think how come they don't get this well the thing is that part of their of the passover meal is a jewish custom it's not mentioned in scripture But isn't it just stunning that that's the custom? And and it points to the same thing. Um, But let's get back to the meal. Who would eat the meal at the tabernacle? Well, the sacrifice-making family, the sacrificers, would bring their animal, lamb or whatever. It would be sacrificed, and they would get to eat some of them of the, of the meat. And they would bring other things too. They'd have mom, dad would be leading the, the, the animal up and then mom would have uh, maybe a jug of wine and some bread and some, um, some real food in there. Some, some vegetables and some fruit probably and, and who knows, raisin cakes and all kinds of things that they, they would have. And they would go along with the priest who officiated, that priest and his family and they would go off in the tabernacle to a picnic table or a a picnic blanket or whatever, and they would go and sit together in fellowship with one another, and they would eat. There are even specific laws in Leviticus 22 about who in the priest's household counts. Because everybody in the sacrificer's household counts. They brought the sacrifice. But if we can just read this portion of that... No person who is not a member of a priest's family may eat anything holy. No guest or employee, I think we would say slave, or I'm sorry, no, we would say servant, not not slave. No guest or, or employee of a priest may eat anything holy, but if a priest purchases anyone with his money, that's a slave, right? That person may eat from it, and those who are born into his household may eat from his food. So basically, if somebody has their feet under the priest's table, he gets to eat, he or she gets to eat. And there, this law goes on, by the way. What about a daughter? Well, if she gets married, if she marries outside the priestly families, she no longer gets to eat the priestly food. But if she marries a priest, then she eats that priest's food. Well, what if he dies? She comes back to dad's house and she may eat dad's priestly food. And what do you think? What if she gets divorced? The law says she gets to come back with her feet under dad's table. She still gets to eat the holy food. She's back under his care. So there's gospel here too. Delightful, wonderful gospel about this. Um, So the people in the meal who eat together are in fellowship with one another the priest who sacrifices and the people who bring the thing and everybody with their feet under their tables. So the disciples and Christ are in fellowship one another with one another. We come to the Lord's Supper and the ministers who are distributing and the, and the congregation who is receiving are all in fellowship with one another. This will all come up in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 where that fellowship is a a key part of, of the Lord's Supper, but here it's still a key part of what they were doing as well. okay? And then they all get to eat together. In their culture also, the Lord would allow for a Passover, your leftovers can be eaten tomorrow, but the day after, no more. And in a world without refrigeration, would we say, that's probably wise. How many times as a student in college did I poison myself by allowing the hamburger helper to sit on the stove overnight? You'd think I would have learned. Never mind, let's just go on. Uh, You'd think I would have learned. Probably once a year. Terrible food poisoning. Yeah, ugh, ugh. Ugh. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Ulm, Minnesota.